That one was dead <laughs> on, brother. <laughs> we haven't lost our touch yet. Well, <laughs> <laughs> speak for yourself, Lawrence. This is Lawrence Lewis. And this is Sister Christian. Today is Thursday, June 25th, 2020. This is the Producers Happy Hour, a weekly podcast with two producers on opposite coasts, learning what it means to be a good producer as we come out of a global shutdown and try to figure out how to get the film industry back to work safely while still navigating this pandemic. We find ourselves being asked to take on greater responsibilities from a variety of guidelines created by multiple sources. Now more than ever, it's important for us to keep sharing our experiences and ideas and honestly to communicate with each other so that uh, our fears and our, you know, what we've tried, what we've seen happening out there. Yes. So email us or better yet, record a one to two minute voice memo and send it to producershappyhour at gmail.com. Just follow the instructions on our website, producershappyhour.com. And please share this show with your friends, colleagues, you know, your work. (laughs) If you've started back to work, everyone there, we want these stories to be heard. We feel they're very important to our community. Yes. So rate us, share us, help the (laughs) algorithms out. You know, sharing these stories is important. Like us. Like us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Christian, today we're chatting with Chris Aola who is a New York-based story producer and post-producer with over a dozen years of experience producing documentaries, non-scripted, and competition series. And he is a fellow Mets fan because uh, (laughs) living in Queens, I feel like it's mandatory. And his most noteworthy project in the moment is a six-part Netflix series called Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak, which premiered this January just as the current novel coronavirus was making its way around the globe. So quite a uh, surreal, <laughs> surreal experience, a little topical, <laughs> surreal experience for, for Chris. So it's an interesting conversation to hear what he learned. <laughs> because he then, once it all started happening, he started to interview the people he met on the documentary and just doing interviews about the current state of affairs and putting them on YouTube. Yeah, It's really fascinating. So he learned a lot and we're going to chat with him about it. But first, Christian, now that we're a weekly podcast, it's like uh, I barely know you. How's it? <laughs> How's it going? Well, I've been quite a busy little beaver over here mm-hmm. in New York. I've received calls for work and, you know, navigating this new world as I feel prepared for it because we've been talking about it since, mm-hmm. you know, forever now. <laughs> yeah. Since 111 days ago. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> Last year, but still yesterday. (laughs) I think that I'm prepared for it. It's just putting all of this research into practice, I feel, is the next step. Frankly, as experienced as I am, slightly nervous. Well. Like we should be. (laughs) We should be. It's a new world. That just means you're taking the safety of your set and your crew very seriously. Yes. And I made sure that there's no 5G, so we're good there. (laughs) (laughs) Just for the serious folks out there. Yes, exactly. (laughs) How are you doing, Um, Lawrence? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm getting little feelers. I'm hearing little feelers, little bird calls Mm -hmm. of like, hey, there's a job. There's a job. (laughs) Nothing is concrete yet. Nothing's locked in. I don't know what any of it looks like, but I'm interested to see how it will all work and excited to be doing something a little more like my old life. (laughs) Yeah, I guess I'm craving a bit of structure right now. The job that I'm currently considering taking would require that I attend set. 
It would not uh, be a remote job. Okay. So thinking about all of those obstacles, working with every vendor, you know, mm-hmm. looking at the budget, making sure that I have ample amount of days in for NAD prep days, mm-hmm. and then also mm-hmm. all the things that come with the quote unquote COVID-19 costs. Yes. Yeah. It's actually been refreshing to put some of the research to use. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, listen, I, I always think everything I say is valuable. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, do it, like having the show and doing all the research has come in quite handy. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I look forward to putting it all to use as well. Well, we have a couple news items that we should chat about, right? Now that we're a weekly podcast, a lot happens in between the time we talk. The first one that my news item for today is Kendrick Sampson mm-hmm. and Tessa Thompson. Yes. And over 300 black artists and executives call for Hollywood to divest from the police. Variety got the scoop. It's exclusive. They have the letter. You can see it there. I love it. Search for it on Variety. But I have portions of it here. So actor Kendrick Sampson, who was in Miss Juneteenth, which I just mm-hmm. saw, mm-hmm. he penned an open letter to Hollywood asking them to divest from the police and invest in the black community. The letter wow. was developed alongside Tessa Thompson, who mm-hmm. was in Westworld and mm-hmm. Endgame. And Thor Ragnarok, which I just yeah, loved. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> She's, a, I mean, yes. girl crush. Uh-huh. Also with Black Lives Matter founders, mm-hmm. and it was signed by over 300 black artists and executives. I mean, they're all names you know. Billy Porter, Viola Davis, Octavia Spencer, blah, blah, mm. blah, on, on and on and on. Here's a portion of it. I thought this was the juiciest portion of it. The lack of a true commitment to inclusion and institutional support has only reinforced Hollywood's legacy of white supremacy. This is not only in storytelling. It is cultural and systemic in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Our agencies, which often serve as industry gatekeepers, don't recruit, retain, or support black agents. Our unions don't consider or defend our specific intersectional struggles. Unions are even worse for our below-the-line crew, especially for black women. Exactly! Sorry, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood studios and production companies that exploit and profit from our stories rarely have any senior-level black executives with green light power. Mm -hmm. Green lighting power, sorry. Mm -hmm. They have a full list of demands on a website, bldpwr.com. bldpwr.com. And some of those things are divest from the police, mm-hmm. which everyone can do this out there. If they are supporters of this out there, you can email Mayor Garcetti, Governor Newsom, and your city officials. You can email them and request that they move the jurisdiction for permits and traffic control to the city, county, or state offices instead of the police, sheriff, or CHP. Mm-hmm. We're asking them to commit to no police on set or events oh, for wow. any purpose. We can use private security exactly. guards, union security guards even. Mm-hmm. And you can pressure every state, which Hollywood benefits from, from their tax rebates to divest from police as well. So, you know, Hollywood's benefiting from shooting in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So we can speak over to them as well. They are also asking for Hollywood to divest from anti-black content and invest into anti-racist content. Invest in the careers and the communities of black, indigenous and people of color. It's a pretty cool letter. It's there on the website, bldpwr.com. Go check it out. 
I love this, especially the part about the unions, because I know here in New York, even though we have a pre... I'm not going to say our sets are diverse. I'm going to say that the crew is diverse that I know mm-hmm. of. Do we all happen to work on the same jobs together? No. But I, I can you know, say that I feel like the crews here are more diverse than they are in L.A. And I think one of the major complaints here is that all the unions won't even consider black women. And really? I mean, it's just it's kind of known. This plain language in the way that they've pointed it out is Mm -hmm. just an eye opener, I think, to a lot of people out there who did not realize what was happening or never chose to think about it. Yeah. Never had a reason to. Yeah. Because they're not black women. And I think it's horrible. So I'm very happy to see this come out. Very happy. So, Lawrence, too, I've been issued guidelines by oh, Sugar Daddy really? Cuomo on mm-hmm. how I should be conducting a production. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> what, does, what does he suggest? <laughs> it looks like what they did was take all the little guidelines and white papers from everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I do, just I, combine them and put a New York flair on them and boom, here they are. <laughs> There's like, you have to I, read it in a Bronx accent. <laughs> I do have to say the PDF that they issued, because I took a peek at it, is just easier on the eye. Yeah, I mean... It's bullet-pointed, it's categorized, and it's not written in prose like the 32-page Hollywood one one is written in. Well, what I get a lot of lost into is the comments. (laughs) Because anyone who comments on a story in Variety (laughs) has a very strong view, but I will leave those alone. What I will say is is that, you know, we are a tri-state area here. Mm-hmm. And so part of the the obstacle I'm seeing in preparing for this job is we're holding stages in both New Jersey and New York. Okay. And so different rigs will have to happen uh, right. on each one or what is allowable is different by state. So you actually really have to do a pretty deep dive on yeah. what the differences are. Hopefully, you know, by the time this job rolls around, they will be more streamlined because they're usually on the same page. But there's a few differences in how many people should you have on set per state is just different. Some base it on total occupancy of the building and others base Mm -hmm. it on numbers alone. So you just have to. Yeah, it's interesting. But I also heard that Orange County. Yes. Has a completely different outlook on Uh, L.A. County. And so. Productions, mm-hmm, including oh. union productions, are heading down to Long Beach in those areas in order to avoid some of the restrictions that L.A. County has right now. Oh, boy. I did my best to leave Orange County as quickly as I could. Because <laughs> <laughs> I lived there for a, a, you know, a good chunk of my childhood. But I was like, i got to get back to L.A. We'll put the links to all these articles, of course, in the show notes. But you can research them yourselves. The New York guidelines are on variety, so that's easy to find. And there's a link in there to the PDF that they actually put out. Yes. So we also want to draw attention to a link on our page that has anti-racism resources. We made this page on our website with these resources for you to educate yourself, but also so we can use them as well. Yes, exactly. We're going to, you know, educate ourselves on the issues of racism that have long plagued our society, as well as links to actionable things that you can do to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes. 
I actually just updated it, Christian, and to your point. I went on one of them that's called Petitions. Yes. And I'm like, I'm going to sign a bunch of petitions today. I'm trying to take a little bit of time mm -hmm. out of my day every day to do something actionable. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm going to sign petitions. I'm going to sign every petition on this Google Doc. So I started going down the list. And then about, about an hour later, I started, I'm like looking at I'm like, how much more is down here? I scrolled up. It's like six pages. As the need is so great. As the need is there. And every link is a different case of some kind of police violence yeah. against a person of color. I want to highlight one, Christian, because this one's really like crushing my heart. It's Elijah McClain. Yeah, have you I heard know. his story? I, I, I have. And I, I yes, it's, um, it's tragic. It, well, yeah. I have. Please go on. Yeah. He was 23 when he was killed on August 24th last year. He was walking home after buying some tea at a local convenience store. According to his family, he's anemic, so he does prefer to wear a ski mask to keep his face warm at night when he's out walking. The Aurora Police Department received a call of a suspicious man, and of course the call resulted in his death. He was suspicious because he was walking down the street with a ski mask dancing. If you've read anything about this young man, He's a special kid. I'm not sure if he's on the spectrum or what makes him a little bit different, but his style of communication is unusual. Yeah. But if you listen to him, he's so freaking adorable. There's videos of him on Instagram mm -hmm. just being mm -hmm. the sweetest kid. What he did in his spare time, he would play violin for kittens that were in shelters, <sighs> yeah. in cages and shelters. And he just, you can, there's a video out there. I'm not going to link it because, you know, if you really want to see it, you can find it. But it's tragic. It's the whole video from the body cams. And he's saying, I'm introvert. Please respect my boundaries. I can't even hurt a fly. I don't eat meat. I'm just mm -hmm. walking home. He was just pleading with them for a long time. And it, it's just a heartbreaking thing to watch. So if we can highlight one petition to sign, it's almost to three million Get on there. It's on change.org. Justice for Elijah mm -hmm. McLean. Yeah, because of the stigma of mental health in this country, yeah. police are called when somebody is not acting, quote unquote, normal a lot mm -hmm. of times. And so yeah. part of, not to get political, part of the understanding of the defund the police movement is that instead of calling 911 over something like this, you would actually call an entity that would be able mm -hmm. to be prepared to handle it. Yes. And whatever that entity, a community officer, let's call it that. And so this is real important to shine the light on because not only is it wrong, often it's a simple misunderstanding that police officers are not equipped to handle. And that's not an excuse for the behavior. It's the reason why they're not right to be handling it. Yes. So, yes, please. Um, Elijah McLean is, that's important. There's also a link for Instagram, <laughs> which is called, <laughs> on Instagram, called Advertising Accountability, which this is, is one of my favorites. fucking fantastic. I think it's one of the best things going right now because it's actually what I would consider tiny, tiny, tiny little actionable thing that you can do is check in on the brands that you watch that, and just hold them accountable. If they post something about their stance or make some <laughs> grand gesture about, you know, Black Lives Matter, tag advertising.accountability in the comments to, on that post and they'll categorize them. They yeah. catalog them. Just because a company comes out and says they're going to do something, how do we know? 
unless you check back in on them and the accountability of it. And do you remember at the beginning of COVID when um, we heard from every single person we'd ever emailed a company Uh about how they were handling COVID? Yes. And we started to get it a little bit with how are they handling COVID on the opening up? Yeah. So I've noticed that that's what we're starting to see or we're, you know, it's been about a week, a week and a half now of all these brands coming out and saying what they're going to do for Black Lives now. And I just, I think holding them accountable is important. Yes, 100%. There was one on there really blew my mind, and it was McCann Erickson mm-hmm. and Microsoft. Mm. And McCann has a like a sub-agency that handles some stuff for Microsoft. And they reached out to a black artist and producer by the name of Chantel Martin. Mm-hmm. And she screen grabbed this email and, and shared it. And advertising accountability has memorialized it in their feed. And so the email is, hello, I'm a art producer at M United, M colon United, which is the Microsoft focus agency within McCann Erickson. The front of the Microsoft building on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan is currently boarded up, and we're hoping to fill the space with a mural in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. We love your work, and we'd be very excited to partner with you as a black artist in the New York City community, hoping to complete the mural while the protests are still relevant. <gasps> and the boards are still up. Ideally, no later than this coming Sunday. <laughs> Would you be interested in available for this project? <sighs> so, of course, you know, in case that doesn't hit a nerve for any of you listening, the simple fact, you know, Chantel responds to this about what, you know, her re- reaction to it. A, it reminded her of her blackness. B, it reminded her of how black pain and oppression is commodified with performative allyship. Mm-hmm. See, this is what systematic racism looks like within corporations. And most importantly, D, apparently the people at Microsoft and McCann Erickson feel that the Black Lives Matter movement and protests will not be relevant after this weekend. I mean, for her to take the time to teach all of us that lesson is very important. And it should be splashed all over Lawrence sent me a, <laughs> a link to Walmart in Canada that are selling All Lives Matter shirts. Oh I mean, gosh. I know a lot of, I know, listen, not all of us shop at Walmart, but me being from Georgia, I don't mind popping into a Walmart occasionally when I'm at home. You better goddamn believe that I'm never going to shop there again. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just, is this outrageous that they would sell something like that? It is, but I learned an interesting thing. Yes. You do not need an account on Walmart.com to comment on their products. <laughs> you shut up. <laughs> so if anybody has some spare time out there. <laughs> I mean, reading up, them alone would be great. Look up the All Lives Matter t-shirt that's oh. available for purchase on Walmart. And feel free to comment. Share your thoughts on that yeah. piece of Please. Product. <laughs> <laughs> Please. And everyone, we also have our take action link that we're in the process of updating. So there's still yes. plenty of, you know, actual items that are necessary. I think we've evolved a little bit past some of them. Like I think as important as it is to donate blood, it may not be as important as it was a few months ago. But exactly. I can tell you that saving the post office is. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to rearrange them and fix them for you. Yes. Here in L.A., maybe in California, there is talk about aid for renters, $2,000 per household to help pay your rent. I don't know much more about it. I'm going to do some research, and I'll include that on that page as well. Thank you for that. That'd be lovely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's get to our interview. Let's do it. 
Chris Ayola is a New York-based story and post producer with over a dozen years of experience producing documentary, non-scripted, and competition series. His work has aired on Netflix, History Channel, TLC, and Nat Geo, among others. And his most noteworthy project in this moment is the six-part Netflix series Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak, (laughs) (laughs) which again, it's just, it's amazing, which premiered this January. He also enjoys photography, drumming, improv, and rooting for the Mets. Let's go Mets. He and his (laughs) wife, Ashley, a matchmaker, live in Queens. To learn more about Chris, you can find him on YouTube. Just search his name, Chris, A-I-O-L-A, on Instagram and Twitter, at Chris Aola, or his website, ChrisAola.com. Let's take a listen. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Before we start, love to get, you know, where are you at in the country? How's your family? How's it going where you are? Thank you for asking. So my wife and I live in Queens, New York. Mm-hmm. So we're in the nice. city. We are doing fine. We've stayed healthy and mm-hmm. mostly happy throughout this whole thing. Being in the epicenter of the epicenter in Queens has been interesting. But yeah, we feel pretty fortunate to have gotten through this thing, or at least this phase of this pandemic, you know, and we still have our health intact. Yeah. Um, let's go Mets. <laughs> I miss baseball so much. I am a diehard Mets fan. And I didn't him too. <laughs> like the unofficial Mets motto is there's always next season. And I feel like that's that's yeah. sort of a, a motto mm. for the whole league right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, it'll continue when it's safe and we should wait. Just, you know, it's it's not about wants, it's about people's health and safety. So the, the Mets and Yankees are actually coming back to New York to train because they the teams feel that they're safer here than they are in florida right now which is oh yeah. really interesting yeah that yeah. is very interesting i saw that and i saw you know there's a lot of production happening in florida right now and it's a little bit of the wild west down there because there's no regulation right now yeah. so your safety is dependent upon the company you're working for and their own regulations mm. So, Chris, obviously you produced and edited the Netflix series Pandemic, which we're, we're going to talk about. I saw it and it was it was amazing. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a second. But we're now chatting when things are kind of starting to open back up and people are going back to work and shoots are happening and whatnot. Do you have any projects on the horizon, any new projects that you're able to talk about? Well, first off, thanks for watching and for the kind words about <laughs> Pandemic. <laughs> that whole thing has been surreal, to say the uh, least. Yes. Yeah, I can say that I do actually have work lined up. I actually start in about a week. I'm really fortunate in that I start up and I'm going to be working a remote gig again. And Mm. the last gig I was on was remote. And it's really nice to know that that flexibility and that possibility Mm -hmm. exists right now. I think a lot of people are discovering, and a lot of companies, honestly, are discovering that work can happen from home more, and that's, or they're figuring out how it can. Very interesting. Well, let's chat about the series. What stage of the series were you in when, you know, by, you know, the beginning of the year, or hell, the end of February, when the real life pandemic hit? (laughs) Right. I was working on a pilot at the time. Uh, I started on this pilot sometime in February. And so about a month into it is when the New York shutdown Mm. started to happen. And Mm. I was very fortunate in that the company I was working for at the time was able to pivot pretty seamlessly from working in an office to then being able to work from home. They had the capability to do that pretty quickly and easily, and there were very few hiccups, all things considered. 
But the nature of a pilot is that you're never sure if the work is going to continue. It's all dependent right. on whether or not a network is going to decide to green light a show mm-hmm. or a series. Mm-hmm. And so that in itself had a degree of uncertainty because we're working on a one-off pilot and then it's sort of up to the network to decide if they're going to move forward. And in that particular moment, how are we going to move forward with it? And ultimately the show was greenlit, which is great because I think that the show has huge potential and I did really enjoy working on it. But there, the nature of a pilot in itself just added to the, the long list of uncertainties that were affecting pretty much everybody at that time. But yeah, I was fortunate to work for a company that was able to, to do the shift from office work to remote work. And then once everything started shutting down, were you just flashing back to everything you learned uh, on the series? <laughs> or where was your mind as all this was kind of unfolding right before your eyes? Yeah, I was in a really fortunate position. I was in an interesting position where I could sort of be ahead of the curve a little bit. I was able to see yeah. the writing on the wall before most people did, I think, just by the nature of having worked on Pandemic on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And so I was watching all these news updates when they first started coming out of China, and then I was paying attention to what was happening in Italy, and then I knew that it was only a matter of time before it was going to hit the U.S. And so what was the time frame, like when you really kind of realized this was a problem? Was this all the way back in December or January or whereabouts? Once I started to see in mid-January, I would say, the mm. extent to what was going on in China and how seriously they were locking down mm-hmm. Wuhan, mm-hmm. that to me was a huge red flag that, oh, wow, they mm-hmm. have a situation that could very easily get out of control. Yeah. And there was no question that it was going to spread in my mind just because I knew how these things happened. Mm-hmm. And I also remember at the time, some of my colleagues who I worked on with Pandemic, we were all talking to each other uh, whenever we'd see a headline, <laughs> like, hmm, that's interesting. Group texts, I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, oh, wow, this is starting to look really serious right now. And yeah. Time went by, it all kind of clicked for us. And then we got to the moment where we realized that the series dropped in, in mid-January when this was mm-hmm. still right. basically mm-hmm. in China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were the conspiracy theorists who said that this was all planned or something and mm-hmm. you know, all the tinfoil hats came out. But <laughs> in a way... It's simply 5G. Like, I'm not sure if you heard or not, but 5G. <laughs> yeah, 5G. I actually saw somebody walking around with a face mask that had 5G written on it with an X. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No way. I, so good. Wow. Like, I I'm mean, not even... anything for faster internet, but... Yeah. <laughs> A global pandemic, but also faster internet. So yeah, faster internet. Um, <laughs> was there anything any? And sorry if I've interrupted, but is there anything that specific that you got from working on the show that you were able to share with your wife and say, "Hey, we really need to think about the possibility of this and prepare mm-hmm. for this version of reality." Was there anything that you had concrete from the series that helped you? One of the things that I really took from working on it was this idea that there's a medical response and then there's a societal Mm -hmm. response Mm -hmm. and Mm. also an economic response too. And so my number one thing was, okay, let's not panic. That's the first thing that I started every social media post with was don't panic, (laughs) wash your hands, don't hoard toilet paper. But this idea that people are going to panic and there is going to be a rush on Mm -hmm. supermarkets and people are going to hoard toilet paper, which seems totally Mm -hmm. irrational. But I think that I had 
some foresight and was able to understand that, yeah, we should probably get some more food than we normally do. Mm-hmm. And let's get it yeah. now. Let's not wait too long. You know, let's not turn into hoarders here, but let's, right. let's get a little bit more than we might need and go from there. Because my concern throughout this whole thing has been less about the medical response and more about the economic and the societal response to everything. Like, yes. I think the medical system, as long as it didn't collapse, I mean, it was going to be okay. Right. But it needed to be mitigated. It needed sure. to be mitigated. And I'm not saying that, you know, there wasn't a danger there and that mm-hmm. people didn't really put themselves in harm's way to make sure that people had their health and their life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm much more concerned now about, especially in this overly politicized climate, I'm more concerned about the non-medical aspect of things, especially mm-hmm. in New York right now. I lived through it in New York. Some people are acting as if nothing happened here. No masks, talking to each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, you know, um, all kinds of stuff that I really concerns me because I remember. And now, you know, am I the outlier because I'm wearing a mask? No, you have to keep telling yourself that because it's easy. You get comfortable enough to, you know, forget that something very bad is still happening. Yeah, it's still a threat. As of yesterday, New York is in phase two. Yep. Mm-hmm. Phase two does not mean the mask can only cover your mouth and not your nose. You've got three breathing holes on your face and they've all got to be covered, <laughs> people. Let's do this. Let's make it happen. Yeah. At some point during all of this, you started to go back and interview some of the mm-hmm. scientists or researchers that you met on the show. And then you were kind of putting up those videos on, was it YouTube? Yeah, I put them up on yeah. my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. I think it was remarkable to have the access to those people and then share that information. So, you know, what did you learn by doing that? Thanks. Yeah. I decided that there was an opportunity here with the relationships I had developed with some of the experts that we featured in the series. So I'm mostly, you know, I'm a post producer and I work mostly in post production, but I also had the mm-hmm. opportunity to go out into the field and to interview some of the people featured in the show. And so I said to myself, you know, these people probably have a lot to say Mm -hmm. about what's happening right now. So I'm friends with them now. Why not reach out and get their views, get their opinions on what's going on and what they're concerned about? And so I did. And they were kind enough to give me their time. And Mm -hmm. uh, it wound up being a great thing. I'd never really conducted my own interviews like that before there was Mm -hmm. a a learning process to it and i feel like i'm a much more (laughs) adept youtuber now so there's been some growth opportunity there but i I really enjoyed speaking with them and finding out what they were concerned about Mm -hmm. one of them's a doctor uh, a medical doctor another one is uh, an immuno engineer and the other the Mm. other one is sort of in charge of the whole coronavirus response throughout new york city and the municipal health system. So wow. being able to do that was was cool. And I felt that there was a lot of useful information there. And uh, I got way more views on my YouTube page than, than I ever expected. Amazing. I mean, it's because of, I'm sure, I mean, access to yeah. those people, you know what I mean, is overwhelmingly just important. Did they clue you in on anything that you would need to do or how long this was going to last or any additional information, you know, and from an industry perspective, because, you know, Lawrence and I definitely, you know, learned how to podcast pretty quickly (laughs) in this. (laughs) So I I understand, but you um, having all the editorial and producer experience, I'm sure you learned pretty quickly. 
Yeah, we're all learning very quickly right now how Mm -hmm. to do these things that aren't necessarily in our day-to-day, but we have all these skills that can really pivot into into other applications. And so that's why I did this. I wanted to help people. I wanted to spread useful information because I also know that along with the, the actual virus pandemic, there's also the misinformation pandemic too. So my, my main thing was to get expert opinions and get expert insight and mm-hmm. help spread that to whoever wanted to see it. So Right. Even though the truth is sometimes hard to hear, we need to hear it. Totally. And mm-hmm. some of the things that I, I gleaned from talking to them, I mean, I spoke to an ER doctor who first told me about the refrigerated morgue trucks that were being brought mm-hmm. into New York. And mm-hmm. that was before any of the local outlets had posted anything about that. So that was really, I, when I heard that, that really put a pit in my stomach because this was before we hit the peak of the curve and oh, yeah. we're trying to anticipate how bad it was going to be. So to hear that, oh yeah, we've got refrigerated morgue trucks. And then like a couple days later is when mm-hmm. the first reports of that came through. Through people posting and talking about it that wasn't on the mainstream news. Exactly. And then there were other Mm -hmm. things too, like uh, one of the scientists I spoke with, who he was on the money pretty much with certain predictions he made, like the postponement of the Olympics and other mass gatherings Mm -hmm. like that. And within days or weeks of, of me interviewing him, most of what he had predicted did come true. So it was an interesting insight into what these people thought were w- would happen and, and how much of it actually panned out. And a lot of it did. Right. And what kind of insight did you, if you got something about what's down the road for us, looking into like fall or winter? I can't speak for anybody else, but I know that as far as I'm concerned, it's either things in New York anyway mm-hmm. are going to be either just as bad in the fall or potentially worse. And so my wife and I are attempting to mentally prepare for that. You know, what does that mean for us? Mm-hmm. We've gotten through it once before, but we also started from a place of abundance. We started from an economy mm-hmm. that had much fewer unemployed people yep. and a lot less fatigue yep. and also much farther out from a presidential election. Yeah. Yeah. And so going into the fall, <laughs> we have all of these factors that have been changed. You know, mm. a lot more people have been unemployed and they're a lot more eager to get back to work. Mm-hmm. People have less money now. People mm-hmm. are more fatigued than they were. It seems every day mm-hmm. people are more and more fatigued about the election. Uh, yeah. we're, we're, we're just going to be shells of ourselves by the time the election actually rolls around, but there's, we went into this first phase, this first wave Mm -hmm. being more well stocked, not just with physical goods, but Mm -hmm. mentally Mentally. and emotionally. And Mm -hmm. I think that is going to be the differing factor in the (laughs) second wave that hits us in the fall. And I I do think it's either going to be just as bad or potentially Mm -hmm. worse. Not to mention the fact that we'll also be dealing with a flu season in the fall. And I just saw something that uh, CDC has come up with, something that can detect both this COVID and the flu in one test. Really? Whether, uh, yeah, I did, just came up today in my view mm-hmm. of, you know, like trying to pay as much attention as I can without allowing myself to get totally nuts about it. <laughs> and yeah, that came out today, which was interesting. Who kn- I don't know whether it works or not. 
Yeah. Very hesitant with all the information we're getting. <laughs> There's a, a lot, lot of information. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And like you said, there is fatigue. And I think also, you know, with everything else going on in the world, there is a lot of anger. Yeah. Worries yeah, about but... money, expenses, finances. It's all there. You turn to the skills that you had in order to get information for yourself, as well as, you know, millions of viewers. <laughs> How else has it affected your creativity? This quarantine has been a bit of a challenge just because I feel like there's so much that I can't control that we Mm -hmm. can't control. And so I've really embraced the idea of a routine. I have a morning routine that I replicate every morning just because I like to start out the day with something that sets me up in motion Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. starts out with a success. And the idea Mm -hmm. of a ritual is it does something mentally that, that really works for me. And I've sort of doubled down on the skills that I already have, the creative endeavors. So I, you know, doing all those YouTube videos, I was able to figure out Premiere Pro. I mean, I taught myself a new program (laughs) to do that. Um, I also finally finished my wedding video, which I had been sitting on, not sitting on, but had just been taking me a long time. I really, I really was able to focus on just finishing it. And I was so particular about the thing and, Ultimately, my wife loved it. Everyone I've shown it to loves it, and I'm really happy with it. But, you know, I taught myself and dedicated the time to doing Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I'm also a drummer, and I found a lot of (laughs) satisfaction. In an apartment in Queens? Well, (laughs) let me explain. There is a drummer somewhere in our vicinity who has a Mm -hmm. full-on drum set, and he plays almost every day for hours. We hear him Mm. quite clearly. I can't imagine what it's like. To live in the same building as him oh or her. My God. I don't know yeah. who it is, but yeah. he or she plays pretty frequently. I, on the other hand, have a practice pad, which oh, yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. is mm-hmm. very practical. It's not silent, but it's not loud. And so I've been returning to one of my first artistic endeavors, which was percussion. And so I've been taking lessons with my old drum teacher. I've been opening up the oh, old books again and nice. just working on my technique mm-hmm. and there's a lot of joy in that. And I feel like when I look mm-hmm. back on this time, I think that that'll be one of the things I did to help my sanity. And yes. uh, I think my skills will have hopefully improved. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is interesting because it, it, we can't ignore the fact that there is a lot of death and sickness and poverty that's coming along with this thing. But to be able to have a moment, a beat in this crazy industry that we work in, these busy lives that we work in, in these big cities, to be able to stop and do something for yourself and turn your skills towards yourself, I think is what's helped a lot of people. I think Chris and I have been finding out mm-hmm. over the you know, months of doing these interviews. So, you know, it's, it's great that you were able to have that time. And now as we're kind of coming out of it, we're coming back to work. And, you know, I know you don't work on set all that much, or you're mostly in post-production in an edit bay, but mm-hmm. sometimes we are on set you know, we're kind of rewriting the rule book of how the set works and how to keep everybody safe, but still be able to work. So there's changes that are happening. It's kind of a time of rewriting the rule books. And we'd be remiss to ignore the other social uprising that's been happening regarding institutionalized racism, which does exist in our society and also does exist in our the culture of the work that we do. So as we kind of come back to work, long way around, I'll pull the boat into the into the harbor. <laughs> as we're rewriting the rule book, are there things that you would like to see either in life or in our industry kind of change or adjust so we can kind of come out mm-hmm. of this for the better, not having gone through it all for naught? There's two things that immediately come to mind. 
The first one I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently, I went through my resume and I went through each job and I said to myself, were there people of color who were Mm -hmm. higher up in the ranks than me? I've worked with so many people of color who are on the same level as me, whether they're fellow producers Mm -hmm. or editors or even below Mm -hmm. PAs, that sort of thing. But when I went through the list of jobs that I've had over the years, and I've been working in the industry for about a dozen years, Mm -hmm. I was sad to say that I couldn't think of an instance where I had a black showrunner or Mm -hmm. a black EP, people higher up in the ranks than me. And that was bothersome to me. I don't know why that's the case because I look around and, and, you know, I'm a big networker. I know that there are minorities who are working the same jobs and the same positions and the same shows as me. And yet when I look up, up that ladder, I, I don't see them at the top. And so I'm not sure what the solution is to that, but it's something that I'm more keenly aware of now that I've taken some time to, to think about it. Yeah. And I, that is the first step to the solution, whatever the solution might be, is to acknowledge that. And uh, Christian and I kind of did the same thing. I know I texted her one day and I was like, we've already had the conversation. I don't know a black production supervisor. Right. I don't know a black EP. I haven't worked for a black owned commercial production company. And so, you know, making that aware and having those discussions about it, I think is at yeah. least the first, you know, baby step into how can we fix this? It was a profound realization. Yeah, exactly. And the other idea... You that, said there were two things, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the other idea that I always come back to is the idea that we have a, a group of professional people on the East Coast and the West Coast. And as far as I know, on the East Coast, there's a small group of companies that we're all working for, and a lot of us know each other. We see each other at work. We see mm-hmm. each other at networking events. And the idea that we can't come together to make sure that we're all fully insured so that we have healthcare coverage throughout the Mm -hmm. year, Mm -hmm. that we can't have portable health insurance right now, especially during a pandemic, hello, the time when everybody should be covered. That to me is just crazy. And I'm a big advocate in this idea that there should be an option for people in our industry to have insurance that we don't lose when we go from one job to the next. This is a career. We are professionals. Mm -hmm. I understand that a lot of times the companies and the networks that employ us don't like to refer to us as employees, but we're all professionals who are, you know, we're Mm full-time and there's no reason that our industry and the professionals in that industry should not be covered all of the time under health insurance. It's inexcusable. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think it's definitely a goal to work towards. I mean, I think that we've been labeled independent contractors or management for too long because we're not, I feel it's a loophole and pinning insurance on employer based is just, nobody has that job anymore. Nobody has the 20, 30 years at a factory anymore that, well, I don't want to say nobody saying that, the majority of us don't. And so losing benefits when we lose a job is the worst. <laughs> a lot of in our industry, the healthcare is tied to your union, but the yeah. whole industry has changed so much. Like you said, there's different types of work. Not all of it's union, not all of it's covered. 
and that the industry is fractured in that kind of way mm-hmm. that a lot of us are just kind of left unprotected and on our own, as you said. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, and, yeah. and I guess I should clarify, when I say these things, I'm saying them as someone who is a nonfiction, non-scripted television right. documentary producer. It's a different mm-hmm. story on the scripted side. Yes. But, oh, yeah. but specifically... Yeah. Those benefits are mwah. Yeah, yeah, they really are. And <laughs> Should we all have that? <laughs> we should. And th- those benefits that they have were not just given. They were fought no, for. They fought for them. Yes. You're never going to get anything that you don't fight for. That's especially true in this industry. And anything I've wanted to obtain, I've had to ask, I've had to ask for or, or fight for. And mm-hmm. the effort to get an industry-wide healthcare option that would benefit both employers and producers, that is going to be a hard battle because the, the trenches have been dug. Yes, and there's a lot of discussions happening, I think, about this topic. And I think people are starting to realize the importance and trying to put together something to make that happen impossible. But hopefully these movements keep the momentum and they do fight and you know we can't get everyone protected if we don't discuss this issue during a pandemic when are when are we, we going to get to it yeah exactly. when are we going to get to fighting for ourselves yeah looking forward or looking back we like to ask people this what do you miss the most i miss the magnet theater dearly yes mm. <laughs> yes 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 the yes. magnet theater is a magical place. It's an improv theater in Manhattan, and they do all sorts of Mm. comedy there, sketch, Mm. improv, musical improv. My wife is on a house team. She's on a musical house team. Oh, They've pivoted to remote comedy shows during this time, and it's been great to see, and they're, they're a ton of fun. But I really miss being in a theater and seeing live Mm. comedy. And and what makes it especially hard for my wife and I is that she's on a house team and I'm in the house band. So we're actually on yeah. stage together <laughs> right. throughout the night. And mm. that's the kind of experience that you can't quite replicate through the internet. That mm. kind of through magic, the there, <laughs> especially with improv, yeah. there's something special about... Or even from about, night to night. Yeah. Or even from night to night. There's something special about being in a room where that kind of magic, that instantaneous creative magic happens, and then it just kind of vanishes. And you have to, you <laughs> sort of have to be there to experience it. You have to be there in the room. It. So... That is what I, I miss, and I suppose that's also an indirect plug for the Magnet Theater. <laughs> MagnetTheater.com. <laughs> MagnetTheater.com, yes. And I will also so. say the theater has also set up as a comfort station for people who are out in the streets protesting. Oh, They're handing out so water amazing. and sunscreen and things to wow. help support the Black Lives Matter movement mm. and anybody else who might be out protesting. So they're really that's awesome. They're, they're more that's than great just a theater. Hear. They're a great bunch of people, too. I think the arts, the entertainment, everybody's desperate for that to come back. And I think supporting these small ventures, small theaters and institutions like that is so important because we very clearly need that kind of expression and connectivity amongst our community. So when this is all, things are a little bit better and I'm in New York and and the theater's back open, Christian and I will come and uh, uh, check you guys out and say hello. That'd be great. That'd be great. Thanks. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate chatting with you and sharing your experience. Thank you guys so much. I hope that you guys stay healthy, stay happy, and I can't wait to see you at an improv show at some point. Oh, God, Lawrence, that was so much information. (laughs) 
That was a lot of information. <laughs> and his thoughts on the second wave and what's going to happen in the fall. Oh, gosh. You know, honestly, it's what we've been hearing from the experts, but you don't, it's somebody on television or somebody you're reading online and stuff. When you hear it from a, a co-worker, quote unquote, somebody who does similar things to what we do and is actually doing the research personally, mm-hmm. it kind of nails it home a little bit harder. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, well, go Mets. Go. <laughs> yes. Go Mets. Don't call in. Hey, Lawrence, <laughs> this, sh- <laughs> this show is edited and co-produced by Rob Bloomkey. Artwork and logo designed by Christopher Daniels. And our music was composed by Kyle Puccia. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're back next week. Until then, stay safe, stay connected, and stay active. Wash your hands, don't touch your face, clean your phone, it's disgusting. And if you go outside, wear a mask. It's not a joke, you need to do it. It's what's going to help. Yeah, if you do it, that's all that counts. You don't care what anyone else does, all right? Send us your voice recordings or your emails to producershappyhour at gmail.com. Lawrence, how can people get you if they want you? LawrenceTLewis.com or for voiceover work, as we said earlier, voiceoflawrence.com. Christian, how do people get you? SisterChristianProduces.com Thanks, everyone.